0: Physics world. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. This week, we discover how plasmonic antennas can be used as tweezers to grip tiny objects. And we find out how physicists are trying to answer one of the most profound cosmic questions. What existed before the universe was created in the Big Bang? But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to learn about the latest breakthroughs in electrochemistry? The 240th ECS meeting brings together the most active researchers in academia, government and industry, professionals and students to engage, discuss and innovate in the areas of electrochemistry and solid state science and technology. Michael Hecht from the MIT Haystack Observatory delivers the ECS lecture, Electrolysis on Mars, MOXIE and the Perseverance Mission, along with award presentations on fuel cells for affordable zero emissions vehicles, pitting corrosion and future directions for batteries as guidance for future innovation. The all-virtual event runs from October 10th to October 14th. Attendee registration is free. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash 240 to learn more. Understanding how the universe came into being is a key challenge of cosmology and theoretical physics. I'm joined down the line by Laura Mersini-Houghton, who is a professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She's proposed a theory of the origins of the universe from a quantum landscape multiverse perspective. Hi, Laura. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Hello, uh, thank you for inviting me.
0: So, Laura, what do we currently know about how the universe was formed, and what observations uh, is that knowledge based on?
1: So we, we believe that uh, the universe started with uh, cosmic inflation. It was very small, smaller than any quantum particle you can imagine, and uh, uh, it was full of high energies, and that's the theory of uh, inflation. That energy made that uh, tiny object explode and uh, grow uniformly in all directions and later on grow to the size and and the structure that we see in our universe today. Uh, There is an abundance of uh, observations to support that theory. Uh, Those are the um, temperature maps of the sky, what is known as the cosmic microwave background that looks for uh, quantum fluctuations that were produced during inflation, but then uh, got rescaled as as the universe uh, grew big. There are many other experiments, uh, ground-based and underground, and uh, all the data we have so far seems to support this uh, uh, theory or paradigm uh, that we have of how our universe began. However, asking what gave that initial energy and what was there before, that, that opens a completely new set of problems. And so what are the important outstanding
0: scientific questions regarding the origin of the universe?
1: I would like to think that all of those very deep and very difficult questions about the origin of uh, the universe go under the umbrella of nothingness, of vacuum, the the concept of which uh, even Aristotle has. came up with, with the saying that nature abhors a vacuum. In physics, vacuum means something quite rich, where the whole cosmic uh, drama, if you like, is, is play it, played out. But uh, under that concept of, of nothingness, of, of vacuum, of what was there before our universe even existed, um, some of the uh, fundamental puzzles that uh, bother us are... First off, the, the simplest one, what type of cosmic inflation did we have? Cosmic inflation is a paradigm, it's an idea, but uh, uh, it's a set of models rather than a single theory. So um, in, in, uh, in that question, what type of cosmic inflation produced the universe, we will have um, uh, the, the data, uh, astronomical data, lead us uh, to, towards understanding exactly what energies did we start and what type of uh, inflation did we have, then is the, comes the question that, that I raised before, what gave that energy of cosmic inflation, whatever inflation was, what gave that jump start? and where did that come from? The moment we start pondering upon questions as what gave that, what was there before, we are immediately implying a concept of time. And and the nature of time is is one of the most difficult and fundamental questions that uh, has bothered our race for at least five thousand years, and it has moved from philosophy to science recently. But uh, if you think of the Hindu concept of uh, time, is cyclic. That the universe is going cycles uh, back to being born and crushing out, flickering out of existence, then restarting again and so on. In ancient Greece, we, we have the, the concept of time as being either emergent with the universe, At the moment the universe uh, prompts into, uh, into existence, then uh, time also prompts into existence, or fundamental, as, as being uh, uh, there always, being a, a fundamental ingredient of uh, the very fabric of uh, of the universe. Those... Debates and issues that, that have been going on for thousands of years are still not settled in physics. If you ask physicists today, we are strongly divided into three camps. One says that time emerged with the Big Bang, it is that famous uh, quote of uh, Hawking what is south of the South Pole? Or, or uh, Saint Augustine put, put it um, uh, beautifully when uh, he said there is hell to pay for those that ask what was there before. Um, there is another camp in which I belong, which is <laughs> time. Time is fundamental. Uh, otherwise, we are banned from asking what was there before. The before does not make sense if time emerged with a big Bang. And uh, I, I'd like to believe that the nature of time and the era of time are two separate issues. So... As far as the nature of time is concerned, time is fundamental, and and there is a time concept before our universe came into existence. And that brings me to another set of related issues, uh, namely the the multiverse. However, in the the class of uh, questions about time, uh, there is a third group that says time is an illusion. It's it's um, an imagination of, of, uh, of the human mind. And that also leads to some very um, bothering implications. However, um, I, I take the view that time is fundamental and there is no uh, prohibition into the human inquiry of uh, what was there before our universe came into existence. And, and that's related um, to, to another uh, deep question, which uh, Sir Roger Penrose uh, raised in, in the 70s, and that is what is the chance? that even if we believe in cosmic inflation, which we all do because of, of the uh, support from data, but even if our universe started with inflation, what is the chance for, for starting such a universe? According to Roger, uh, that chance is one um, chance in uh, 10 to the power, 10 to the power, 123. So that that's pretty much zero. And, and that brings about the, the very... The very puzzling uh, problem, if our universe started with a very special start, if it has only a uh, nearly zero chance to, to start in that manner, then why did we start with such a special universe? The moment you start thinking along those lines, then you are led to, to think, what exactly am I asking here? When I say what is the chance to start with a universe like ours? What am I implying compared to what else? And, and that brings about uh, the, the possibility of multiverse, that even the very question of the nature of time, of the origin of the universe, of asking the question, what is the probability of this origin? Those, uh, those all lead to, to something very basic and simple, which is we can only ask those questions if we open up the field and say, well, compared to many other possibilities, compared probably to an infinite number of possibilities, and, and that's uh, the multiverse. So, Laura,
0: you're a proponent of the multiverse theory. Um, how does that describe the origin of the universe?
1: Well, there there is a um, a family of, of uh, different theories uh, as far as the multiverse is, is concerned. Um, when, when I started in uh, around 2003 to 2004, uh, the, the idea of a multiverse of many universes besides our own out there uh, was really um, almost an heresy. So, but but now it's uh, one of the main areas of uh, research in the universe, and, and that is the reason why there are so many models out there. So um, I, I can describe my own model, my, my own theory of the multiverse. And um, um, in, in my theory... Uh, I take the uh, landscape that was discovered by string theory, which you can think of as a field of energies, and each point there, what is known as a vacuum, is a potential starting point for for a universe, for for uh, cosmic inflation, for a Big Bang to happen. The the question when, when that discovery was made in string theory was, uh, well, we we started off with the dream that string theory would explain. Our universe, how it came into being, the origin of our universe, and suddenly we are facing an infinite number of of possibilities. And and that's where I I came in. And I came in from a um, cosmology perspective rather than a string theory perspective. I thought, well, this is great. I, I was thinking along the lines that I described before, where I can't even ask the question, why did I start with this universe if I don't have. A range of possibilities where to start from, and and that's exactly what the landscape of uh, string theory gave me. It was exactly that range of possibilities, all all the different energies one can start a universe from different even different constants of uh, nature. But that was not enough. As as scientists, of course, we we are strong believers of the scientific method. Just having an idea and a hypothesis is, is not sufficient to be believed by your community and to be scrutinized so the, the question that that bothered me for a few months was how can I actually calculate this and test this possibility that we started out of uh, uh, this structure and, and and that was the the kind of first light bulb moment where I realized that I can uh, apply quantum Theory in order to have a set of equations and and uh, solve them to to derive the answer rather than postulate the answer and that's exactly what I did. I put the uh, wave function of the universe on the landscape of string theory. I knew the structure of the landscape because the string theories that derived it. I also knew exactly what to do in in, uh, in terms of a wave function of the universe because you ever had already done it when when quantum mechanics was discovered. So uh, I had a set of equations that that were promoted into uh, quantum cosmology by by a colleague of mine at UNC Bryce DeWitt, another uh, very prominent scientist. So I I could solve those equations and find out exactly uh, what, what came out of that structure what type of uh, universe, or in this case, universes, is a whole family of solutions that mathematically uh, come out of that structure. And also to calculate the probability. I mean, the moment you do quantum uh, mechanics, even if it's uh, in, in cosmology, uh, you know that you are talking in a world of uh, probability. So I could calculate the moment I have the solution, I could calculate the uh, chances for our universe and, and any other possibility, any other possible universe to to come into existence, and, and I discovered theoretically by by performing this mathematical exercise that uh, in fact the chance of our universe is not one to compare to ten to the ten to the uh, one hundred and twenty three, as as um, as Roger found out and as it was. Uh, advertised since the 70s. But in fact, the chance of uh, starting a universe at very high energies was was uh, uh, the, the highest probability that starting a universe could have. And and the reason for that was based on the dynamics of, of the system. So we have the energy that, that this wave function of the universe takes from the landscape of uh, string theory. But we also have fluctuations, which are always present quantum mechanically. Those are like having matter, like having particles inside each branch. And we all know what matter does. is It, it likes to crunch things into a black hole. It's, it's what in physics is known as a positive heat capacity system. Gravity, on the other hand, which is represented by the energy, likes to, to blow things up to to take that initial universe or initial branch and and try to make it grow. So it's a negative heat capacity system. Since we have both ingredients in every branch of this wave function that is sitting somewhere on on the landscape, then we, we have a tug of war where one ingredient is trying to crunch and stop the growth of that tiny quantum branch. And and the other one is trying to blow it up and, and make it grow into a classical universe, like the one we have around today. So it, it was that dynamics that told me if you started very high energies, then energy wins over these fluctuations over the branch of uh, matter. And that's why it has a uh, higher chance to, uh, to produce a, a universe. But as I mentioned, I, I found a whole family of such solutions. And, and that's what... Uh, uh, the, the multiverse theory that I proposed uh, on the quantum landscape. So, Laura, what what type of uh,
0: observational evidence do we have uh, that supports the multiverse theory?
1: Proof is a very strong word because we are talking about structures beyond the horizon of our universe. At the time when we are limited by the speed of light, we we can't travel beyond the horizon of uh, our universe. Neither can we travel back and go to, to what happened before to be. Bank. So the, the way uh, of uh, addressing this, uh, this um, testability issue, which is the most important issue, of course, in any scientific theory, was uh, to, to think hard uh, against another prejudice uh, in the community at the time, which was, even if there is a multiverse out there, we'll never know. That, that was the, the main reason why the multiverse idea was not popular at that time when when I was working on the problem. So I thought, well, of course, we can't physically travel and, and take a picture of what's out there, but there has to be a way because here we are, we have a coherent story of the whole evolution from before when when our universe was just a branch of the wave function and was sitting in some energy field of the landscape. And we can kind of follow that branch to the point of inflating and after when it's producing a classical universe. So that story should certainly contain signature Ways, And and, uh, that that was the the second important moment in this theory, and that was to uh, really realize that when our universe was just a branch of the wave function, all these branches were quantum entangled entangled with each other, and therefore... That entanglement is still, that signature, although it happened very early on, but is still engraved in our sky in, as part of the cosmic microwave background. And I could perform the calculation. I, I did that with uh, two collaborators, Rich Holman and uh, Tomo Takahashi. I could perform the calculation because we, we had the, the mathematical equations, which was the quantum theory, and we had the whole evolution from before to after. So, we could follow the story and, and uh, kind of calculate what exactly should we look at the sky today and uh, uh, we made a series of predictions, one of those was uh, predicting the cold spot now i 'm talking two thousand and five and two thousand and six in in terms of uh, of uh, the list of predictions that uh, we derived from our theory. Another one was the suppression of the overall uh, amplitude of uh, fluctuations in this cosmic microwave background, uh, known as sigma-18 in physics. And there, there were a lot of uh, signatures, mainly at, at, um, uh, at scales compared to the size of the universe, at the type of quadruple, and, and uh, those levels, at the largest scales possible. Of course, you wouldn't expect to, to find anything at shorter scales when, when it comes to galaxy or star uh, scale star formations astrophysics is, is a very violent and nonlinear process, so it will erase any any, any other signature and the entanglement is, is very weak so we, that's how we were able to, to uh, make this uh, series of predictions. Uh, the cold spot was initially in, and and uh, all the other signatures like sigma eight and, and the dipole alignment were initially seen by a satellite experiment of, of uh, CMB, known as WMAP, but the data was not statistically strong. It wasn't sufficient to, to declare a victory or, or a discovery. Then uh, WMAP was followed by the European Planck uh, experiment, again a satellite experiment that had finer resolution in their maps. And uh, by now the cold spot is, is indeed a discovery. It's, it's, uh, it's finding is at a very high statistical level. In physics, we talk of sigmas, you know. Um, the, the other uh, signatures, because they are bound by cosmic variants, because they are at the largest scales possible. Uh, so although we, we do observe them consistently through uh, many experiments, many satellite experiments, uh, but we we cannot declare... Their discovery, a victory because of the cosmic variance, being, being bound by having only one sample, one universe. Well, that's great,
0: Laura. Thanks. That was really, really interesting um, hearing what you're working on. If you happen to be in London the weekend of the 18th of September, Laura will be taking part in a debate on the origins of the universe. The event is in the grounds of Kenwood House on Hampstead Heath, which sounds like a lovely location. Thanks for joining me, Laura.
1: Thank you. Thanks, Amos.
0: Grabbing and holding an object with a beam of light might seem like science fiction to some, but optical tweezers are a well-established technology. Coming up, Physics World's Margaret Harris meets a nanophotonics expert who is pushing the limits of tweezer technology.
2: Optical tweezers are devices that use the radiation pressure of light to trap and manipulate tiny objects such as nanoparticles, atoms, or living cells. They've been around since the mid-1980s, and their inventor, Arthur Ashkin, won the Nobel Prize for them in 2018. But like most technologies, optical tweezers have come a long way since their invention. Here to tell us more about the latest developments in optical tweezers is Justice Indukaife, who is an electrical engineer and nanophotonics expert at Vanderbilt University in the US.
3: Hello, Margaret here. Thank you so much for having me today.
2: So maybe you could start by telling us a little bit more about how you got interested in optical tweezers.
3: Okay. So I would say I've been very you know, passionate about the field of electromagnetism uh, many years ago as an undergraduate student. And um, I learned that uh, light is actually a special kind of electromagnetic wave, you know, uh, basically electrical magnetic field uh, that are time j- changing and essentially coupled to each other. And, uh, Due to my interest in the field of electromagnetism, and also because of my interest in the area of nanotechnology, I was interested in doing something that has to do with light or electromagnetic waves in general. And that was how I started to work in the field of nanophotonics. Uh, so, then, as a nanophotonics researcher, I my PhD and uh, specifically working in the area of plasmonics, which is one, one of the approaches we explore in nanophotonics to enable us to confine and manipulate light to the nanoscale. So I came across uh, the fact that plasmonic structures, or uh, typically made of gold or silver, can be used to confine electromagnetic energy to very, very small volumes, way below the diffraction limit. And then I really you know, rang a bell in my mind that wait a minute, in optical tweezers we know we're limited by diffraction limit, which makes it uh, really challenging to focus light you know, below, about half of the wavelength of light in a given medium. That is about the limit. And that limits the size of particles that one can trap using conventional optical tweezers. So I quickly googled the term plasmonic tweezers to see if anybody had done any work in the area. And I saw a ton of work. I was like, wow, okay, this is cool. There are several research activities in this area already. And then uh, I began to think of what is the new contribution that I'm going to make to the field. And that's when I realized that because in plasmonic tweezers, you are using plasmonic antennas, whereby the electromagnetic energy only exists over a few tens of nanometers from the surface of your plasmonic nanostructures, so you actually face with the challenge of how to, you know, make the particle to be trapped faster. Because typically one has to rely on a slow Brownian diffusion uh, for the uh, for the particles to. You know, transport themselves randomly until they get close to the hotspots where they can be trapped. And that's a very slow process that could take anywhere from several tens of minutes to you know, an hour before trapping can occur, depending on the concentration of the particle fluid system. So I began to think of how I can actually solve that problem, and that's how I got into the field. And uh, I published a paper that addressed that problem for the first time, making it possible to trap uh, nanoscale objects with plasmonic tweezers within uh, a few seconds, like less than five seconds. And uh, this work was published in Nature Nanotechnology back in 2016. And uh, there was also a nice uh, news and views article by a professor in uh, in uh, Japan on this uh, concept. Uh, the idea is that we're able to show that plasmonic tweezers can have not only the ability to tightly grip Uh, nanoscale objects, but also a really long arm to also transport them from distances that are several tens of microns or even hundreds of microns away uh, to enable trapping within a few seconds.
2: Okay, so I think a lot of your research, you know, starting in 2016 but continuing on until the past year or so has has really focused on combining these standard optical tweezers, you know, just a focused laser beam with this other type of technology, the, the plasmonics, to create a hybrid device. You talked a little bit about like beating the diffraction limit. What are some of the sort of more practical applications that you can access when you when you're able to manipulate uh, nanoparticles better?
3: Okay, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there are many, many interesting uh, applications. Uh, first of all, the reason why the you know Nobel Prize in Physics uh, in 2018 was awarded uh, one half of that to Ashken, was actually for applying optical tweezers uh, for their using biological systems for very sensitive force measurements with very high resolution. And beyond that, there are so many applications that uh, new kind of nano tweezers, what we refer to as nano tweezers, can enable beyond the capabilities of the conventional optical tweezers. Uh, so there are two uh, like areas that one can, two broad areas that one could uh, consider exploring. So first of all, is in the area of uh, life science and biomedical applications. So right now, uh, it's been discovered that there are some nano-sized particles that are cells release. As we are talking now, cells are releasing these nano-sized particles. And previously, people think that these uh, nano-sized particles are a means for cells to expel waste. Uh, but recently, in the last uh, couple of years, it has been found that these uh, nano-sized particles called extra- extracellular vesicles contain uh, functional molecules like proteins or DNAs, microRNAs, and messenger RNAs, that cells can actually use to encode information and communicate with neighboring or distant cells. So they are very important for like, therapeutics and also for, as a means to more invasively monitor the dynamic progression of diseases, like a uh, cancer, you know, cancer tumors. Uh, so in what is called a liquid biopsy. Uh, the challenge though is that they are very, very small, and they are also highly heterogeneous. They are heterogeneous both in their size distribution, uh, measuring anywhere from about 30 nanometers all the way to about one micron, and also heterogeneous in their biogenesis. Uh, like some of them, the ones that are called the small EVs or exosomes, uh, comes from multivesicular uh, multivascular bodies inside the cells that then move and then bind to the cell membrane and then released. Whereas uh, the other uh, aspect of them called uh, the microvesicles, are actually from the outward body of the cell membrane. So those are different uh, biogenesis and mechanisms and they all have different functions. So this presents a unique challenge for biologists because something that's small is really difficult to you know, isolate just individual ones and be able to study them. And uh, Optical tools, are, uh, nanotools, are certainly have a, a key role to play in this uh, field uh, to enable biologists to have a better understanding of these extracellular vesicles. This is essentially one of the hottest topics in uh, biology today and life science. And um, very crucially, uh, in order to use them for something like uh, liquid biopsy, which is an area that my group is actively investigating, it's important to be able to detect multiple uh, markers, like protein markers, on the surface of individual vesicles. So you have an individual vesicle that could be of any size or any biogenesis mechanism, and would like to detect multiple markers on their surface. So that is a key area, a key opportunity for optical nanotweezers uh, that optical nanotweezers can actually deliver. Because conventional approaches like using uh, uh, tools like, uh, high-speed uh, differential ultra-centrification, those ones work uh, you know, for bulk uh, you know, materials where you have many, many of these uh, samples, but not really to be able to analyze individual ones. So this is a key opportunity that optical nanotubes would enable us to address and enable new scientific uh, developments in the near future. And we're actually act- uh, actively working in this area. Uh, another interesting possibility, uh, which is one could think is a totally different area, uh, has to do with the field of uh, quantum photonics. So now we begin to see the quantum revolution going on. Uh, quantum photonics has a lot of things that it promises, like ultra-secure communication, and also new kinds of uh, high resolution and uh, highly sensitive sensors. Uh, but the, the key to this is the creation of uh, single photons and also entangled photons, something that is uh, classified uh, Uh, As a non-classical light source, Uh, but the key challenge to realizing them in systems that are compatible, uh, you know, chip-compatible, and also uh, you know, not too complex, is that these uh, nanoscale quantum emitters, uh, they don't actually emit very fast, and the, the emission rate is really low for most practical applications. So we need to couple them to nanophotonic structures that have a high photonic density of states where the emission performance can be enhanced. And um, also of interest is to be able to do this in a chip platform so we can manipulate the single photons and route them on chip to process information on chip. Uh, being able to manipulate such tiny nanoscale emitters, some of them are actually below 30 nanometer in size, presents yet another unique uh, opportunity for uh, optical nanotweezers, and that is also yet another area that we are also exploring
2: actively. So that's great. You have the sort of division between the sort of biomedical application and then the more quantum photonics application. So I think you, you've actually developed in the, in the past uh, year, 18 months or so, types of tweezers that are suited to both of those application areas. So I think that the first one is this hydrodynamic tweezers, or OTETs. Tell us a bit more about what those are and, and how they work.
3: Yeah, so out is a very cool device that we you know, published here last year in Natural Technology. And uh, the idea is that if you think about how you can manipulate particles that are on the sub-10 nanometer size regime, both sub-100 and also sub-10 nanometer size regime, that's actually incredibly difficult. Not, to, not only able to trap them, but also to manipulate them. Uh, typically, one can use a... For uh, regular optical tweezers cannot handle such small objects, for sure. Uh, But one can use uh, like nanophotonic-based tweezers, plasmonic based tweezers. Uh, But the challenge then is the particles can only be trapped right at the hotspot. And there's no way to dynamically manipulate them. And uh, yet another important issue also is uh, the particle is also trapped at the region where the temperature is high. And that presents challenge, especially for delicate biological molecules like proteins or DNA. DNA could experience a uh, melting, proteins uh, couldn't uh, misfold. Uh, so in order to ensure that biological molecules are intact, we need a way to ensure that they are trapped away from both high-intensity region and also high-heat uh, region. Uh, so that is really what OTET, or Opto-Thermo Tools, that, uh, deliver. And uh, basically, the, the way that that works is we have a metal film that we drill a tiny nanohose on the surface. So when you illuminate uh, this structure, the metal film, you generate some local heating effect uh, due to the excitation of this plasma wave, and uh, some of the energy is converted to heat. Uh, so that heating results in a local heating of the adjoining fluid medium, which in turn results in a temperature gradient in the fluid, and also a gradient in the temperature dependent properties of the fluid, namely the electrical uh, conductivity of the fluid, and also the uh, the permittivity of the fluid. So under the condition of uh, local inhomogeneity in the fluid properties, if we apply an AC bias, we can induce an electrohydrodynamic flow in the fluid, something called the electrothermal effect. So in in the audit, this electrohydrodynamic flow it's basically a vortex, you know, microfluidal vortex. And when you resolve it into both radial and axial component, we discover that the axial one is actually radially inward. Uh, yet another important flow that is also induced is something called AC electrosmotic flow. And this happens uh, because of the fact that when we have this structured metal film, and narrow film, I we'll have another electrode, we we'll apply an AC bias across them in the region far away from the metal film we're supposed to have that the electric field is normal to the surface that's what uh, gauss law from electrostatics uh, tells us uh, however close to this uh, nanostructured you uh, know gold nanohole array region this uh, nanohole array can distort the electric field so we have both a normal component and also a tangential component so that tangential component of the AC electric field can then act on the diffuse charges in the electrical double layer, which are free to move. And as those charges move, that induces a flow known as uh, AC electrosmotic flow. So interestingly, in OTET, this AC electrosmotic flow is actually radially outward. So I have a radially inward uh, thermoplasmotic flow that is coming in, and then it's, it, get, it gets balanced by this radially outward AC electrosmotic flow and the greatest stagnation zone, where the fluid velocity goes to zero, far away from where we are illuminating, and also far away from the edge of this uh, nanohole array. And that defines where the particle can be trapped. So when the particle comes uh, into that uh, stagnation zone region, it gets trapped uh, by this force, you know, due to this balance between these uh, flows. And in the axial direction, the particle is trapped by the particle surface interaction force. And once we have this trapping, we can also dynamically manipulate the particle by simply translating the laser beam. Uh, but very crucially, the particles are always trapped several tens of microns away from where your laser intensity is, where your where your laser focus is. And that ensures that the particles never get to experience high laser intensity and also never get to experience uh, any photoinduced heating. So they basically feel the ambient temperature, where you can still translate them from one position to another by moving the laser beam. So it's it's like action from a distance. You know what one we think could come out in a sci-fi, but we can actually make this happen in microfluidic chips.
2: That's really clever. I I really, I think I remember reading about this and just thinking, wow, what must leaps of logic to take? Okay, you can't trap them, uh, the particles at the laser focus because they'll heat up and be destroyed. So how do you work out how to trap them in a way that's associated with the laser focus but not at the laser focus? So your other hybrid device, the one you've developed more recently, um, that's the one that that's, has applications in manipulating these, um, I think, nitrogen vacancy centers in, in diamond or quantum photonics applications. And that's called a low frequency electrothermoplastic tweezer or LFET or LFET.
3: How does that one work? Yeah, so in, uh, this a low-frequency electrotermoprosponic uh, tool. So the idea is to trap uh, nanodiamonds with uh, nitrogen vacancy center. So these nanodiamonds with these NV centers you know, have been found to be uh, very stable uh, quantum emitters for quantum photonic applications, because they do not uh, photobleach. Uh, so one can, and also if you have one that just have a single NV center, that can serve as a single uh, photon source. So, in order to enhance the emission properties, we need to couple them to uh, photonic structures, like uh, plasmonic structures, are very good examples, because plasmonic structures provide a very low mode volume, and uh, also, uh, you know, using this low mode volume, you know, you can have very high cell effect. Uh, they can also enable one to have ultrafast operation, which is very very important. Uh, so, what we did in LFET is to leverage what is typically considered to be detrimental in plasmonics, namely that plasmonic structures are always lossy and they dissipate heat. So we found a way to take advantage of that heating effect. And then with this uh, interdisciplinary approach that leverages an uh, AC electric field to induce a particle surface interaction force, which is very strong at low frequencies, hence the name low frequency, uh, to enable the trapping of uh, single nanodiamonds. So basically, for this, uh, in this demonstration, we have an array of gold nanopillars on a substrate, and then we'll have another electrode. we apply, uh, we illuminate a region of these uh, gold nanopillars with light, and then we'll apply NAC bias. We're able to induce electrothermoplasmonic flow that can induce long range transport of these uh, diamonds from several tens of microns away, and position them close to the you know, central laser spot. Now, when they get close enough, there is also a heat in this force, like a thermophoresis, which in this case is actually repulsive. We'll show that we can overcome thermophoresis by using this uh, particle surface uh, electrostatic force, which increases when we have low frequency, low AC field frequency. So, by using a low field frequency, we're able to mitigate uh, repulsive thermophoretic force and still enable the trapping of a single nanodiamond on this uh, plus 20 substrate. And we can also manipulate the diamond, uh, you know, from one region to another, you know, very in a very simple manner by simply translating the laser stage.
2: And finally, um, you know, what's next for your group? What's, uh, having solved a problem in biophotonics and one in quantum photonics, you know, what's what's your next challenge?
3: Yeah, so next uh, challenge that my group is uh, working actively, you know, to address, uh, can really be divided into those uh, two areas the biophotonics aspect as well as the quantum photonics uh, domain. So, specifically for the biophotonics aspect, we are working actively in this field of extracellular uh, vesicles. And the uh, very key challenge we like to address is to be able to analyze individual vesicles with very, very high throughput. We want to be able to analyze like thousands of them but have single vesicle uh, resolution. And I believe uh, there's plenty of room for optical tweezers uh, in this domain. And we are working at the forefront of the field to develop those kind of tweezers that will have the specific uh, capabilities that will be needed to really advance uh, and contribute you know, to new developments and breakthrough in the field of extracellular vesicle research, both for fundamental biology understanding of these extracellular vesicles, which is something that is still very, very important you know, to date as well as for their translational uh, biomedical applications, especially in liquid biopsy for non-invasive uh, uh, you know, early disease uh, diagnosis, also to monitor the, you know, the, the response of uh, patients uh, to treatments. For example, in certain kinds of uh, cancer uh, that are so, you know, they're, they're not so accessible, it's very beneficial if we can develop the capability to harness these vesicles, which can be released from most bodily fuels, like plasma, uh, also from saliva, you know, and so on, uh, to get an information on you know, the state of cancer. I think that is something that will be very beneficial to society, you know, and to help to uh, improve a patient outcomes in the future. Uh, so we are working actively in this area, and uh, a key focus is really to detect these single vesicles, and also to be able to detect uh, multiple markers on individual vesicles, uh, that is key to really have a, a high reliable data uh, for being able to see indeed that uh, to glean b- better information on what is contained inside of uh, these uh, vesicles. And uh, with respect to the area of a quantum, we are very interested in uh, doing uh, developing on a cheap platform that can enable us to manipulate around route a single photons. So we are working actively to be able to integrate nanoscale emitters to well-designed nanophotonic cavities, so that we can enhance single photon emission generate entangled photon pairs and then be able to route this on chip. So that's a key area that we also investigate.
2: Justice Nukaife, thank you very much for speaking with us today.
3: Yeah, Thank you so much, my brother.
0: I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Laura Mersini-Houghton, Justice Enda-Kaifa and Margaret Harris for joining me today. And as always, a special thanks to our producer, Callum Jelf. Please do join us again next week. But in the meantime, check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast, which is called We're all going on a geeky holiday. Host Andrew Glester meets three people who are drawn to geeky holiday destinations. There's a radiation researcher who sings the praises of a vacation in Chernobyl, a yoga instructor who travels the world to experience solar eclipses, and a nutritional psychologist who recommends a visit to the Marconi Center in Cornwall. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World.